All right, so I'm John McCracken, and we're here with the legendary Jeff Berlin, my favorite bass player on the planet for many, many years. Wow. How's that for an introduction? I, uh, <laughs> I think we should end the, the podcast right Good here. Good night. Yes, thank you for... <laughs> <laughs> so sitting in for uh, Sarah Childress, she's the lovely and talented, uh, directed all the videos. Just want to give a shout out to her. She did an amazing job for the Jeff Berlin bass lessons. Jeff and I have been working for, what, the last couple of years on on, uh, on this? Yes, we've actually, uh, we met two years ago through our uh, Leonardo. The great Leonardo Pavkovic, Alan Holdsworth's manager. Alan Holdsworth's manager, and he said to me, there's this great guy you should meet named John McCracken, and I re actually I recall this because uh, I, I thought, well, that's really nice that there's this great guy called John McCracken. <laughs> I said, but why do I need to meet him? Do you remember? <laughs> so, and, and you're still trying to figure out. What I've been doing. working on it since, and <laughs> but I said I'll call you up, and I did because uh, you know Leonardo was uh, very persuasive. I said I called you up, and uh, not saying it just for the broadcast. It was the best moment for me, professionally, obviously friendship-wise. We become excellent and dear yeah, close yeah. friends. That's a yeah. that's kind of an organic reality, and uh, I've been we've been working together for two years. Part of why we're doing this today is I started out as a guitar player, morphed into being a producer, worked for EMI Music as an A&R guy for a number of years, and I have to say that, you know, and I was also fortunate to work with Alan Holdsworth, and many years ago, when I first heard Alan play, and, when I, and then when I heard Jeff play with Bruford in the late 70s, I had this fantasy of working with both of these guys somehow. I don't know, there was like some kind of weird vision, uh -huh. and I actually wound up working with both of them. Yeah. Alan, in a very different part of his career, but, you know, Jeff... Jeff and I become fast friends, and uh, but I think that period in music was was very seminal for a lot of musicians. And I, you know, if you want to talk about that a little bit, Jeff, is how you how you went from Berkeley to coming into the Bruford thing. And I know you guys played with Tony Tony Williams too, and with Alan. So I don't think people know really that whole history there. Oh yeah, <clears throat> and for I think for a lot of our audience, that that's a, those records are some of the greatest records ever made. I think fascinating that they stood the test of time. Yeah, I really. have to admit. Um, I was a student at Berkeley. Um, this is at a time, I guess, the school only taught music. Music was its uh, center, and I was uh, uh, greatly improved as a bass player and as a musician. And then one year, or one, it was 1975, somehow, I can't recall how, this, I might have to ask Ray about this, Carmine Apice, the drummer from the Vanilla Fudge, somehow heard about me. And uh, I left school to meet him because he wanted to make a band. And this was, this was my summer of love, I'll describe in a second. So I got with Carmine and Ray Gomez was the guitar player, sure. and Steve Hill, Stevie Hill, who lamentably, he, he died recently. He's a keyboard player, very nice guy. We used to hang too when I came through on gigs and through Texas. And, uh, and we this played, was in Boston? This was in New York. Oh, so you came down to New York. Okay. Went back to New York, played Got with it. Carmine and Ray Gomez, and Ray said, well, he's a friend of Patrick Moraz's, who had just recently got the gig with Yes, after Wakeman had left. And Wakeman, or excuse me, Moraz is about to do a solo record, and this was a period where, on a recommendation, or the word of a, of a trusted colleague or friend, a musician could get hired. I mean, sure. right out of the blue. And sure. Ray, having heard me as a very young and very new musician, still... It was very nice. I mean, he thought I had something, you know, unique, and, and as I thought about him. And uh, so he recommended me to Patrick. And I went to uh, Geneva, and I recorded with him and Patrick. 
And around, uh, but before we went, before we went, somehow Bill Bruford caught wind from Patrick that there's this great guitar player, guitar player in New York named Ray Gomez. Hmm. And Bill came to New York trying to look for him in order to possibly make a band with him. Ray said, would you like to play bass with us? I said, sure, I'll, I'd be thrilled. I loved Bill and love Bill. So I went and played. And I recall this very clearly that we played and Bill looked up suddenly, looked at me and started grinning. I looked at him and I started grinning. And of course, Ray played great, but something clicked in our particular, sure. you know, unique, uh, otherworldly connection that, that happens with musicians. Yeah. He went back to, to England and I went on to do this record in, in uh, Geneva. And uh, we had a lot of musicians. I met John Anderson. We became pretty palsy-walsy. John Anderson from Yes. Who else did I meet? There was a bunch of guys that came through and sure. friends of Patrick. Because Patrick at that time was in arguably one of the biggest bands in the world at that moment. So I got noticed immediately. In fact, so immediately that when the record came out, the mix... Oh, I remember Alphonse Muzon. The late Alphonse Muzon was yep. the drummer. Andy Newmark was also the drummer on the other side. I used to go to Andy's house in New York and hang out with him and Ron Wood. Just sit around and shoot the beans, you know. <laughs> right. Hey, I hear you're a bass player. Yeah, I am a bass player. Oh, wow. He says you're a great bass player. And it was very nice, you know. I didn't mean, bring it to the Stones. Huh? You should have been in the Stones then. I would have loved to, but that darn Bill Wyman just <laughs> yeah. would not let go of his uh, of the bass chair. I mean, I, I said, look, you got 50 mil. Take a chance. Get out of here. Go relax. So um, I met... It, this is the circle that I ran in sure. starting out as a kid. I was 22. But I, <laughs> I never felt until rather recently that I can play the bass well. I know it's maybe a little... Yeah. It's not false uh, modesty. I've come into my own now and in the last 10 years, let's say. But everything up to that point was always experimental, blah, 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 blah. So even though I, while I was very highly heralded, I guess, I kind of had those doubts. So nonetheless, I was running in these circles. I was hanging out and I went, I was backstage at a Van Halen concert when the theater hall held, I think, 1,100 people. And the, and the bill was Journey with uh, Steve Parrott and Van Halen. And I watched Van Halen play it, and on each side of the stage they had a missile. That was their <laughs> stage props at the time. They had uh, what looked like, you know, the old sort of four-finned cylindrical sure. with a point missile that they sure. used to drop during World War II, possibly, maybe. And they had one on this side of the stage, and one, you know, you know when uh, Shostakovich used to do concerts and stuff. Not Shostakovich, when uh, let's say Vladimir Horowitz did concerts, they put a palm tree on the left and a palm tree on the right. On, uh, on the Van Halen gig, it was a V2 bomb on each side. So, and it was fun because, and then I met sure. these guys. I mean, uh, it was an interesting period. This is the time when we were all, all us musicians were uh, interacting with each other, jamming, playing, touring. Uh, it was a vibrant and fully fully rewarding time. A lot of growth happened to me in that period. Well, also there was a record industry, so there was an outlet for people to make records, you know, that would be supported, hopefully. Well, I did record dates all the time in New York, because I could read. I got hired, I mean, for loads of stuff. What a heady time that was. But it was a perfect storm of many things. Also, what do you think made the music resonate with people at that point in time? I think jazz had taken, like, traditional jazz had taken a hit. Yeah, Miles sort of 
push chairs into an electric form. Right. And um, I'm going to guess. One, I actually I do have a theory about this. There wasn't record company intervention against good music. So the record companies, in fact, were seeking it out. I mean, it was a time where if you played, you, you were heralded and promoted and recorded. And people looked at musicians. Look at Jaco Pastores. He's probably the highest representation of a guy who knocked people out of their chairs because he could play so well. In the mere fact that a guy could touch an instrument and a bass of all things and make such an impact, it's an interesting and fascinating little window in music that opened, was open, and then closed. And how about this? I was right there when the window was open, man. So it was a fascinating, fascinating time. And they, were, they loved it. The more you played, the, the better you played. Stanley Clark, Lenny White, uh, what was it, Return <laughs> to Forever, Mahavishnu Orchestra. You think that'll ever happen again? I don't think so, no. I would say it won't happen like that again. Um, I think that uh, it's, it's a slightly different time now. I, it's an ironic time because the industry has, le has less and less, let's say, opened its doors to bass players. And yet, at this time in music, it's the greatest bass players almost that ever played are, are proliferating everywhere. There's guys that play five times what I play. I mean, uh, astonishing. You know, I'm the old man now. Yeah, these kids, I, when I was young, I don't, you know. And these kids are, huh? Yeah, but we've talked about it a lot, that, you know, that's still having a voice on your instrument. Like your sound to me mm. and the way you play is unlike anyone else. And you also, ironically, were at a period when Jocko came along. So that was, you know, the two of you were titans of the bass at that point. Stanley. And Stanley. Sure, it was Stanley. actually, they referred to us as the three guys. Yeah. I mean, I thought maybe of Alfonso course. Johnson, who should have been the fourth. Yeah. But in I terms of publicity, it was just us three. But uh, I heard a couple of earlier weather report things not terribly long ago. And Alfonso Johnson, Alfonso Fantastic. was playing his ass off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this guy deserved more. In fact, I believe he was playing fretless possibly around the same time that Jocko did. And was utterly independent of the fretless influence that Jocko sure. had on everybody. Alfonso just sort of geared himself toward it. Isn't that fascinating? And I think that that was the thing about you too. Is you you defined your sound. I mean, you were not a Jocko. Or you were, you had a Jeff Berlin thing. I did, but because of the fact that I was a note bassist, because of the fact that uh, I tended toward a more MIDI sound. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of a, a. I mean, Stanley did too. Uh, a notey basis, but his tone didn't aim toward the kind of the round sound that Jocko, uh, uh, what's the word, innovated, yep. and that I really wanted just because I wanted the notes to be heard. So I could have been compared with Jocko in those days and would notice, actually I took it as a kind of a, a positive. Somebody might say, well, I hear that Jocko thing in you. And the minute I heard that, I would change yeah. the amp. Or, wow, sure. that thing is, well, I would get off and not use that pickup. That's the reason why I never use jazz basses for the most part, hmm. is because I didn't want to get into that sound. I mean, I had I was fairly clear that you don't go into somebody else's backyard yeah. uh, if they've already, you know, marked out the territory. So, yeah, I had a sound, I would agree, but I didn't have the maturity as a musician. I was just, I know what I was. I was full of vim and vinegar. I was well-educated, I was well-schooled, I was well-experienced, but I didn't have a style that I felt right. was forth, was coming, you know, subsequently. So, well, tell them about the, uh, the which, you know, I never realized that you, you, Tony Williams, you and Alan almost had a band together. We did. I, I 
happened to get in touch with Tony Williams, and I don't know how it happened. Again, the, the, the details elude sure. me. But he lived up in Harlem, so I went up, took my bass, and started doing walking bass lines. We started playing uh, jazz, and he looked up again with that same look that Bill gave me, and he goes, oh, my God, you know. Because it was only two, three guys on earth that did that at that period. <laughs> right. You follow? Sure. It's just by the mere uniqueness of what I'm... I think you're being modest, though. Huh? I think you're being modest. You're right. I was great. So <laughs> that, No, but... No, I mean, I, Well, it's just like Alan. You, no matter how much you told Alan how great he was, you know, no, no, I'm not... No. Well, we're so <laughs> intimate with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's probably true that you can never be happy in, in, in the quest for getting better. But for, for me as a consumer audience, it was like, oh my God, these yeah. guys are just... Never heard anything like this. Yeah, I, I, I'm. It's very hard to put yourself in the audience perspective, but as a musician studying music, and yeah. you're somebody like you or Alan, you go, "This is like, this is changing my life." Yeah, sounds cliche, but it's true. No, I, I can appreciate it because I've had that effect with certain people that did the same thing to me. Right. Um, interestingly, well, Jack Bruce was the only bass player who did that to me. Mm -hmm. Utterly, completely, overwhelmingly, and totally knocked me out. And Peter Tork. <laughs> well, for his look. <laughs> well, you went for the look. I went for Peter's Jack look. Sound. I went for Jack's sound. So in other words, I got great gigs, but I never met a girl in five years. So it's like it didn't work out so well. Um, yeah, great bass player. Looks like Peter Tork. Get, you know, get out of here. Um, I, Jack did that for me. When I yeah. heard those Cream records, and when I met him finally, he, I was almost close to tears, I think. Yeah. Where I was a little shaken to meet, because uh, John Heisman, the, the great drummer sure. from England, yeah. was a friend of mine. I, we had met. Yeah. I met him during this time when he had Gary Moore playing. And, and I think it was Don Airy, the keyboard player, who played with a White Snake and a lot of the oh, rock yeah, bands. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So these are a lot of the running yeah, I mean, bands. And we were all pals. <laughs> uh, John and I were friends. I got to England to play with Bill. I invited John to come and I said to John, you know, I'd really like to meet Jack. He goes, yeah, I'll, I'll introduce you. So went down to the old Ronnie Scott's and talking to Jack, uh, yeah, talking to John. I'm talking to Dick Hextall Smith. Sure. Um, Ginger wasn't there, but I would have loved to have met him. I think, I don't think I could have survived an evening of both <laughs> meeting Ginger and Jack. That is if you could separate the two from you know. Um, and then this sort of smallish, scruffy guy with a beard walks up and goes, you know, hello, Jeff, how are you doing? And I said, hi, Jack, it's a pleasure to meet you. And man, I tell you, I was, I'm actually getting emotional thinking about sure. it. This is literally the guy that put me on the path that I was on. I shedded every note. I shedded every phrase. And that night he drove me back to my hotel. Uh, maybe I shouldn't tell this story. It's, uh, uh, I, I will, I will. Huh? Is it another PG story? No, it's a clean story. We oh, were right. in the car and he had toasted himself the e in that evening and was rather warmed over from it. Which is and surprising for English musicians. Especially Scotsmen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The teetotalers that they're reputed to be. So we're in the car and he started to cut some jokes and, and uh, he wanted to get out of the car and fight a guy in a corner, you know, just for no reason. And, his wife was just getting furious at him because of his attitude. And his sister-in-law was in the car and she clearly hated him. And like he would like say like to her, yeah, come here, come here, come here. And she would like smack him in real like annoyance. And I'm busting a gut laughing my ass off. Anyways, I go to the hotel. He comes upstairs, gets, we're upstairs hanging in my room. And suddenly he starts to cry. Really? He's sobbing. And I had to hold him. 
I said, Jack, what's going on? And it was, uh, I think, a story that people know about him. Robert Stigwood was their manager yeah. and withheld a great deal of money oh, I know. Yeah, from the cream like, members. Yeah, and he said, I don't know what I'm going to do. He said he's crying and crying. And then he goes, you're the most beautiful bass player I've ever had. I don't know what I'm going to do about my money. And oh, I, I was a little bit taken aback. Sure. But... It was kind of a moving point. I mean, I, my hero showed his hum, hu, humanity to me. Yeah, know? of course. And uh, I walked him downstairs, and we were subsequently fan, friends, and I met. But Jack was the only guy to, to, to the day that we would write emails to each other. I, I would say, look, Jack Bruce wrote me an email. I mean, he really got under my skin, this fellow. <laughs> So, so you, okay, so we'll go back to the uh, Tony Allen. So you're with Tony in his apartment in, um, in Harlem. Yeah, uptown. Alan, Alan was hanging out with Tony then, right? It was the first time I met Alan. I saw this. I can see his face now. He was just sitting there. He never looked me in the eye. And it was Alan. And, and you know, hi, hi. And that was it. We played a jazz tune, which I don't recall if Alan played with us or not. I, I think he may have, but I don't recall. Anyways, Tony, eyes got big. Yeah. You're in the band. And we're going to make a trio. I said, a trio? He says, yeah, we're going to make a cream-like trio. And like a hard-hitting rocket, you know, with Alan Holdsworth. And, and, and oh, my God. He said, come on, we're going down to Manny's, and we're going to get you some Marshall amps. It's true what he said. The fantasy <laughs> element of it was phenomenal. Sure. But again, I wasn't good enough to fill that role. I needed a harmonist in order that I could play to that, I oh, felt. I okay. So the mere fact that I would be entirely uh, covering, the, I mean, with Alan in his particular stratospheric <laughs> melodies, uh, I, I had to provide something a little more basic. I could have done it, but I didn't feel qualified and I did not accept it. Now, had I had the sort of nerve or the temerity of character, yeah. what's the word, is that yeah, it? Yeah. To accept the gig, yeah, I'll do it, you know. Maybe something good would have come of it. I had the feeling that I made the right decision. I needed to learn more. Wow, that's a tough thing to turn down. Oh, my God. I know. I know. Well, I Did left New York for that. Did you realize how great Alan was at that? Had you known Alan, of Alan before that? I never heard of him. Yeah. It was just this, this guy was in the house with it. I think he stayed over at uh, Tony's house, at Tony's apartment or house. I can't recall. He was lived up on 144th Street, I recall. And I went up there and we hung out for the day. And uh, I love, I mean, Tony is, at, at one point, was the greatest drummer on, oh, yeah. you know, oh, on earth. Doubt. I mean, even more, because the, the uh, Miles Quartet was more impactful uh, in certain circles than, than Coltrane's was. Sure. So okay. Elvin was not as quite as, I would call him revolutionary, right. as a 17 or 18 year old kid like Tony Williams was. So. Right. I, I had bumped into a legend, man, and that was one of my first sort of meetings of of the gods. So, uh, how long did you did you like play all afternoon or all day? Know? Yeah, or a part of the day we jammed, played. And you came away thinking what? I thought it sounded really great, but I'm not qualified for this. You know, I have to get in front of people on stage, and I'm standing with with Tony Williams. Alan sounded great. I got him right away. I heard him, and I said, "Oh, this is." <laughs> Yeah. Special, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and little did you know. Little did I know, and uh, <laughs> later we—that's when we hooked up and became like brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, okay, so so you quit that to do what, Pat Martino, right? I mean, you didn't. Uh, 
Well, I did join Pat. Um, that was the summer of love that I referred to. After being with Carmine, and then I left that. It didn't quite pan out the way that I wanted uh, yeah. the music to be. Actually, you wouldn't, you'd find it interesting, but it was with Carmine that I wrote 5G. Yeah, we were jamming on something, and I said, I got a bass line. And uh, it just popped up. <laughs> and I kept it, and that's when I later did it with Bill. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then I went, did, uh, I didn't do Patrick right away. I got a call somehow. Again, I don't know how. Yeah, yeah, well, that's the, right. the, the, in, the yeah, underground the tentacles. tentacles. Uh, Gunther Schuler's son. Uh, he was the bass player with Pat Martino, and they weren't quite satisfied with it. And somehow I, my name came up. Yeah. So they flew me to Minneapolis, and I walked in, and I recall Gil Goldstein <laughs> just looking down, miffed as all hell that I walked in. He didn't like me at all. Just, really? I think really? he thought I was some rocker. <laughs> is what he told yeah, me yeah, later. Yeah. And I, we played, and it, it just took off. I mean, Pat yeah. was bebopping like a monster, man. And, and the drummer, who was it? You know who the drummer was? There you go. Anton Fig from the uh, yeah. Letterman Band. Wow. We were roommates on the, on the show. Again, one of the hundreds of guys that, that we all mingled, co-mingled <laughs> together. So we were roommates in, on this show. And I played, I toured America. Got to L.A. for the first time. Um, very, very, I'll tell you a funny uh Road story, if yeah, you're interested. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we were course. driving through possibly Utah because it wasn't a flight tour. It was we, we had a big car, and I don't recall if we had a little. We put amps, or I don't sure. recall how that went. But we're in a car, and we're driving through. Pat's driving, and we went through Utah, and he was going too fast and got pulled over, and was directed to follow the policeman to this little town off the road. And there's you know buttes and Utah. Uh, strata and all of that stuff and we There's pulled Mormon. up in front huh mormons hanging around <laughs> and we pulled up so we pulled up to this kind of couple of buildings there the, I mean, the town only had four or five buildings in it it was really small yeah and we pulled up in front of a diner and it was and i saw this and and uh, the cop and pat walk into the diner and the, the chef is there you know actually cooking with an apron and the cop's talking to the chef, and he goes, okay. And the chef took off his apron and then turned to his left and walked through a side door because right next door was the constable office, the police office. <laughs> the chef sat down, and he was the judge. So he sat there and actually took a gavel and tapped it. And or, or a spatula. Or a spatula. <laughs> Actually, it's funny because when, when, when Pat got fined, he flipped out. Okay, sorry, bada boom, bada bing. But that's what happened. The chef took off his apron, walked through a door, and he was the justice of the peace or the judge. Jeez. And we're all sort of hanging. We're actually, the rest of us are climbing up a butte, literally just waiting. Pat paid the thing, and he was red-faced when he came out. He was so mad, and we got in the car. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, a $10 fine, but it'll be five bucks if you order two cheeseburgers to go with it. I thought it was going to turn into a story where you're you know, imprisoned for four months or something. Oh. Yeah. Well, that happened when we got to Arizona. <laughs> so how long did you play with Pat? Two months. And then we pl I played with him in New York, and then on and off. And uh, Pat was, again, a fascinating... And remarkably unique and kind of an odd man, but uh, yeah. he, and I feel that geniuses are odd 
on and off a guitar or their instrument. Sure. It, it's hard to turn off one's genius or one's brilliance when you're, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. in normal society. So <laughs> I'll say, Pat, how are you? The circumference of a square is not equal to the circumference. <laughs> Glad to hear it, Pat. Glad to hear that in the family. Gravity is not tangible when we... Yes, Pat, I think you're absolutely right. Well, I... What was that line that... Uh, that uh, Woody Allen said, well, I'm, excuse me, I'm due back on planet Earth. <laughs> but uh, he, he was great. He really was. He, was a, he is a lovely guy. He's a, a legendary guy. And he had some and, health issues. Oh, my God. Him. He's he relearned the guitar twice, mm -hmm. right? And he had a stroke and then had to relearn and then did it happened again. Yeah, that's, that's peculiar because he was a thin man. He yeah. was actually painfully thin. So it's, it's hard to imagine what caused that. It might have been genetic. But uh, all right, so I played with him. So where am I now? Went to did Pat. Uh, so let's see. That summer was was Patrick Moraz, Pat Martino. Uh, 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 what did I just say? Uh, uh, Carmine Apice. Then I moved to New York permanently, and I started that period right up to about the time that Bill Bruford called that I could go and play with him. So it's ironic that Ray introduced you to Bill and Ray didn't make it into the band, right? It is. Well, Bill has a philosophy of playing that is uniquely his. If I had any lesson I learned from, from Bill Bruford is, the, is to be or to, to emphasize the unique. Mm -hmm. It was He called it the fifth band member, the ghost. The, the reason a group sounds has, as it sounds is sort of that unidentified thing that is intrinsic with a group. And uh, so I... Got a call. You want to come? And I said, yeah. And I, we started our tenure together. And uh, now, had Alan been with Bill at that point, or did Alan come in later? You know, he had been with Bill. He and Bill had a, a relationship. I came in, the only American, with Dave Stewart. Right? With Dave Stewart, right. and then he also had uh, uh, what is it, uh, uh, Annette Peacock, who was right. Gary Peacock's uh, yes. ex-wife, and she sang, and Bill just loved her singing. I can't recall the lyrics, but she would sing to the store. Bill adored this. And um, then he had some melody or something that he wanted on, it was on Feels Good to Me, and I said, why don't you try a flugelhorn player? And he got Kenny Wheeler. So it was a very fascinating first, uh, you know, foray, foray into a... So, I would, did, so just for the audience, had, when you came to Bruford, was, was everything written out? Pretty much, the, I would was the sum of kind of improvised because it seems we highly composed a, a lot of the times. It was highly composed. I had parts, and then I would be allowed to alter them or yeah. suggest, or why don't we add this, or why don't we do this? And I contributed later one or two tunes, um, but really it was mostly written. And credit to Dave Stewart as the unsung genius of the Bruford band. If Bill is obviously the visionary and, and the point man for this group, Dave Stewart carried, I would say, almost the entire box of chocolates. <laughs> he carried the whole flavor of this group. His, he did. His harmony, his vision, his sensibilities. And then when Alan was there, it was fun for me. I mean, Alan and I just instantly went like this. And for people who couldn't see it, my, I interlaced one hand with the other. And as people, we just sort of, you know, you meet people and you sure. fall in love with them. That was Alan and I. He was very, very loving with me and I, and I felt brotherly with him and we hung. But I wouldn't drink. I'm not a drinker. Yeah, and yeah, he yeah. was loved beer and yes. special, unique <laughs> yeah. things. So I wouldn't go to the bar with him, but we'd hang 
I would say in a lot of the periods around his <laughs> drinking moments. Now, did that that band with that with Alan didn't do much touring, right? We did. We uh, but not did States, England, but right? we never went anywhere. Then then he quit right off that. Yeah. But that's Alan's sort of. Uh, yes. Yeah, it just doesn't show up. Yeah, he does. I mean, sometimes he'll just go home. Yeah. Oh, there's legendary stories about Alan just having plane tickets and just not going to the gig. Well, he was out with uh, Jean-Luc Ponty, and they were waiting at the gig, and he just turned around and went to the airport and went home. But that's a that that's a fear. That's that's not. You can't blame him, but unfortunately, no. it is. He's an adult man, and he had to be held accountable for it. But he had this funny nervous odd way about him that inspired him to do and make choices and decisions that usually didn't work out maybe for his benefit but i have to say on the same way i mean it's what got me into therapy and um so i would say we knuckleheads well the the genius level of musicians i think also comes with some other deficits lord giveth and he taketh away like with alan i think alan probably didn't really function well on this planet. You know, he didn't really approach life in the same way most people do, I don't think. It was a tough climb for him. It, it, it was, even up to the end. Yeah. Alan sort of ascended this astonishing musical mountain. Mm-hmm. And I think in life, he sort of got up the molehill and leveled off. Yeah. Um, and I lament this because, uh, well, I, I live the same credo, I have to say. And if it's yeah. valuable to our little sure. chat... Um, my, 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 I grew up in a very difficult home and therefore became arrogant, angry, and defensive. And you can't be like that among people, especially in our business, when everybody's a little bit egotistically and a little sensitive and stuff. And I never held back any comment, criticism, or any point of negativity whatsoever. It's an awful way to act. And I branched out a rather distasteful reputation, mm-hmm. which I still have in certain circles, but since I've come from therapy and have changed my ways, I accept what I've wrought. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with it, meaning I'm not this guy, but how do, it's like Scrooge. I, I kind of equate <laughs> myself as Scrooge on Christmas morning. It took a long time, I would imagine, for people to get over the fact that he's not the curmudgeon that he used to be for all of the years that they knew him. So Alan invented a kind of a lifestyle based on his own phobias. Mm -hmm. I'm not being a therapist here. I knew the man. And he could talk himself into, because I know this from my own therapeutic work, you can talk yourself into a good point of view and you can talk yourself into a bad one. And Alan's thing was, oh, I can't play and I'm the worst and I I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And I would say, Alan, at least be realistic and just say you're not happy with your playing tonight. But you can't deny that you have something utterly and absolutely remarkable oh i can't play i suck oh i suck he called it cheese Everything's i'm gonna cheese, play my yes, cheese. The cheese and you know you tell yourself you suck and you play like cheese enough you really are going to believe that a lot of our playing reflects a lot of our you know well, it was some s- internal thing right? spirit yeah i mean i was aggressive and therefore my bass playing is aggressive and you know, now I'm fairly well boring. It's like, you know, we should do a whole album of uh, ABBA covers. I think that'd be nice. I'd love to. I'd like to do like the ballads that we never really liked as children, but here they are now. The Long Jean Symphonette. Symphonette Society? Jeff plays Jeff plays Zamfir on the bass. Richard Claterman. <laughs> Richard. 
You should jam with him. I think it'd be a fun jam. Well, would, would that be weird if I associate? Well, people won't know this, but I could be, like do like Jeff covers Frankie Yankovic. You know the greatest polkas of all time. <laughs> Track to rumpa oompa oompa. See, but that's the sad part is now that might have actually some validity. <laughs> the crazier, more out it is. <laughs> Jeff does Frankie, which doesn't sound very good for me, does it? So, this, so getting back to those, so how did those sessions work? Where did you record with Bruford? We recorded... It was oh, all in England, right? It was all in England. I think the first couple were at Trident Recording Studios, where I believe the Beatles did Hey Jude. That's right. And so, yes. uh, that was, I mean, it's a huge studio, of course. I mean, I played in the studio with uh, some history to it. Uh, I learned a lot there. I could not figure out why I could not get a blasting, ballsy, beefy, huge bass tone. Hmm. I've sought it all my life, and quite frankly, and I'll say it right now uh, on our little chat here, you're the first guy I think that had ever helped me realize what I would call a truly <laughs> rotund and, <laughs> and meaty, oh, thank you. gutsy bass tone, but I had always really kind of sought yeah, well, then, I remember reading things so that you would always complain that you were always kind of too low in the mixes of those, some of those Bruford records. And, well, the well, second say, one for sure. I have to say Ron Mallet did a good job on uh, Gradually Going Tornado, though. I think it was an overcompensation to my being concerned about the second one because he couldn't hear bass Yeah. on a lot of it. I heard it at actually Don Airy's house. Oh, really? And we got the record. I put it on proudly. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I'm here. I remember playing these parts. <laughs> And you hear wah 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 yada, and in the background you hear like. I said something isn't right here. The bass is supposed to be blasting, right along with the with the drums. It's supposed to be an equal or general equal thing. So you you had no input into none. I went home. I mean, I sure. I again had to learn, to to you know that if you want to use me under certain circumstances that yeah. is not all of course yeah. that I require these things you know and I don't think it's unfair for me to, to make those requests but in the early days I, I don't get me I mean who would mix or who would record a bass player and not mix them in there Patrick Merez did the same thing and that's what I was going to say earlier it's like Alphonse Muzan and I I mean we when we met there's a I can hear the song in my head it's on, on uh, Patrick's record and it was roaring and we played it as a trio. Yeah. And Patrick was, you know, on the piano. Alphonse was just burning. And he was he was looking at me with his eyes open, too. All these guys would look at me with their eyes open, like, wow, check this bass player out. Heard the record, and you hear the drums and the bass. Really? And then on top, you hear rah, 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 piano, 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 and 150 darn stupid freaking synthesizers. My therapy's collapsing right here and now, you know. I mean, how can well, they I guess we can figure out whose record it was. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, I could not figure that out. That thing. I learned a lot from that, being disappointed on those two records. Oh, but yeah. that record got me hired by Al DiMiola, Lenny White. The Brecker Brothers, Brian Auger, Ray Barreto, and Tony Williams, and, and I. <laughs> 1976, we all went to France to play a gig. Really? Al DiMiola, oh Lenny goodness, White. I never heard of this. The Brecker Brothers, Brian Auger, uh, Ray Barreto, uh, Tony Williams, and me. Was any of this ever recorded or anything? It was a live I gig. don't recall, but it was a festival. 
and I look, and it's like name huge, name huge, name huge, name big, name huge, name huge, name Jeff Berlin on the base somewhere. In a tiny little font. Tiny little thing. That's right. With Jeff Berlin. Oh my God! I think there's probably some things floating around somewhere out there. I imagine so, but it was actually quite funny because after I got off the stage, because I played with that same boxer intensity that yeah, you yeah. were mentioning, I said, I'm with these guys. I said, I, I must attack. And uh, when I got off the stage, it was possibly my first European interview of my life, or one of the first, and a mic like a, like Tony Clifton. <laughs> They're pushing in your face. Went right on my face, and I hear a guy go like, you know, France Radio, don't be scared, because I jumped back when this mic was shoved in my face. And what's the question? The first question I remember is like, you have a France Radio. What do you think of Stanley Clark? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I'd say he's great. Thank you very much. Have a good day. He was gone. You know, <laughs> my first, you know, entry into publicity. Jefferson likes Stanley Clark. Headline: Stop the presses. Well, thanks for listening. That concludes part one of my conversation with the great Jeff Berlin. Stay tuned for part two where we uh, further examine Jeff's career and I get him to admit that he was in fact the fifth Beatle and that his first love wasn't bass but actually bowling. Thanks as always for listening and take care.